Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome back to Solid Six Podcast. For the second time in a month, want to do a trigger warning for child abuse and child sexual assault. There's something in the air at Solid Six Podcast. So if you've got any kiddos, we'd say have them egg, have them exit the room. And if this is not something you're into, we will see you in the next episode. Yeah. I went to an evangelical super church one time with my friend because like, there was like a Jesus, sleepover. really? And uh, I got a free loaf of bread and I thought it was awesome. Because <laughs> it was like this, this like little like uh, like fancy little loaf of bread. Is it? They're like, is anyone new today? I'm like, you need to raise your hand. I'm like, so I had to like walk down. They're like, here you go. And like, like three or four other people out of like thousands of people came down and I got my little loaf of bread. What the shit? Yeah. Oh my God. Evangelicals are nuts. That's right. You're hanging out with the most attractive, smartest, most humble podcast in Portland. Oh, thanks, Brady. No, I changed my mind. The motherfucking universe. Yeah. Uh. I'm Brady, your least favorite host of this show, but that's who you got for today. And I'm joined by Allison. Dirty D. DeGrazio. Are you the most humble, most attractive or the smartest? I thought you were describing me the whole time. Not, not, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, guys. And I'm also joined by Josh. Yes, you are. <laughs> Hello. The humblest one, human, apparently. Human ballast, Josh Griffith. <laughs> I have so many qualities, like balsa wood. Imagine a, a box of beige cereal. Is- anyway. <laughs> Oh. oh boy, I'm so I'm sorry. happy to be here. I'm just happy to be here, guys. <laughs> You're the grape nuts of the show. <laughs> That's it. There you go. I'm the cornflakes. Well, guys, I've been struggling with reality this week, so I figured why not process my disassociation while talking about the most famous crime that happened on Christmas. The, the genocide of all those kids that Mary and Joseph were fleeing? Yeah. Because <laughs> that's a huge... That's like a war crime. That's fine. The most famous U.S. crime. Oh, okay. All right. For Christmas? Yeah. Uh, It wasn't a mass shooting. Oh, Jesus. No. What? Oh, Jean Benet. Yes. Oh, gotcha. (laughs) My bad. Today, we're going to be uh, deconstructing casting Jean Benet, the 2017 meta documentary that follows a casting call of actors reenacting the Ramsey family. But first, Josh. Yes. What have you been up to other than making our artwork look dope as shit? Yeah. It does look so good. It does look great. Let's see. Watching a bunch of movies. Working on projects. Uh, let's see. This week we watched um, we watched Bombshell, which mm-hmm. was, of course, about the Fox News sex scandal with all these like ladies having to like blow Roger Ailes to get a job. Yeah. Which is... But the makeup was amazing. Like yeah. just like full stop. The makeup was yeah. fantastic. The Taking re- Charlie Theron, making her look like Megan Kelly, and the prosthetic work they did with John Lithgow was all great. Yeah, the reason the reason I wanted to watch it so bad was because it won the Oscar for best practical effects 
best makeup last makeup year. effect or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, it was all right. Yeah. It, I mean, I was not upset that we watched it. Yes. Yeah, but it, it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a knockout or anything. No, it, did, it wasn't a slam dunk for sure. We watched the second, oh, Rare Exports. That was great. Which was, you know, because we're getting the Christmas spirit. Mm-hmm. And that was fun. It really kind of ended weird. It had nice energy in it. I got a burp. <laughs> Josh, we talked about this off, yeah. off air. Carbonation so, does us no favors. Uh, so it has this nice energy. It, the environment feels lived in. They have this like really kind of fun, dorky, like little kid that stays in his dorky outfit through most of the whole movie. It sort of feels like, you know, authentic Finnish kind of like culture or whatever. And the story is gradually getting better. But then ultimately it kind of does this sort of sideways shift and it mm. doesn't really It doesn't end land, strong. Yeah. Right? It doesn't it doesn't end strong. And I was also disappointed that they make so basically Santa is is just an actual demon that they've frozen in ice kind of like the thing. Yeah. And like so Right. Santa's like a like a woodland god yeah. that's been like buried. Yeah, and and they show like the horns of Santa while it's still encased in ice, and I was like, "Fuck yeah!" Like Santa's gonna look terrifying. Yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna see some Santa, and you don't, you never see Santa. Yeah, spoiler. Sorry, sorry, but I was disappointed. You just they don't show you. I'm all about you know. I'm all about the monsters. Yep, same. I was disappointed in that. I assumed that there would be a lot of cool pagan shit because this movie's from Finland, and I know there's a lot of pagan rituals. Yeah, and- yeah. I mean, kind of. <laughs> So there's like this sort of like this book montage where the the little kid is researching Santa Claus like harder than anyone has ever researched Santa Claus. And (laughs) And he had all the books at his disposal. He had the right books. He had like these five inch thick tomes that like pour through that all have like these wonderful like woodcut illustrations of exactly what's going on to save you the the indignity of actually Mm -hmm. reading in a movie. So you get to see pictures of what Santa Claus is supposed to be like in his like heavy metal, like evil Mm -hmm. God form. Then you never really actually get to see the guy come out of the ice. You see his minions running around. There's a big explosion at the end. So, yeah. I mean... The minions are scary. And then we follow that up because of the whole, like, foreign, I don't know, fantasy kind of stuff with uh, Troll Hunter, mm-hmm. which I, I saw that many years ago, I think when I first moved to Portland, and I loved the shit out of it. Uh, you had seen pieces of it, but you never I, seen the whole thing, I, right? No, I, had, I remember, like, starting the beginning of it, and then because I'm a snob, I, I didn't think the monsters were scary, and so I turned it off. But uh, when you and I watched it, I should—I just should have kept going. It's a great story. It's super fun. Mm-hmm. I—you were saying that it's purposeful that they're kind, they're supposed to be like these mammals roaming around like fucking Jurassic Park or something. Yeah, and it's—it's uh, it's kind of like a—it's sort of like Blair Witch. It's sort of like The Office. Yeah, and it's also like a funny sort of tongue-in-cheek monster movie. Yeah, it, mm-hmm. yeah, it's cute. Have you seen it? No, I've seen the trailer, though. It's good. But the real event of this week, I would say, was Friday night where uh, we spent several hours combing through (laughs) music videos, just watching one music video after another music video, which, of course, are not exactly feature films, but they're like short movies. Yeah. You know... Yeah, like music videos don't get enough credit. Like some some are like uh, outstanding. Do, yeah, you can do so much with a music video. Yeah. Like you can do amazing things with a 30 second commercial. Like yeah. I will cry at the end of a Folgers Crystals commercial. <laughs> we know this. This is solid. We focused on the most expensive music videos ever made. Mm-hmm. So that was, I think number one was that Janet Jackson, Michael Jackson, Scream. Outer Space Scream. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Mm-hmm. Eh, you know. A lot of it just has to do with getting like the superstars in the right place at the right time. If they change the setting or if there's like expensive special effects that drives the price up like a bunch. Mm-hmm. I guess like the spaceship was like the most expensive thing, which like you barely need. Yeah. I mean, I, I just assumed it was the cost of having the two of them in the same room together. 
Yeah, and then there was uh, Britney Spears' Work, work bitch. bitch. Yeah, Work Bitch. Which wasn't, wasn't that good. No, it wasn't that good. And again, it's like having like the stars in the right places. It's like you, you could tell a lot of these music videos are, are co-funded by a product placement or like a sponsor. So some poor girl in a dominatrix like slave outfit oh, is yes. crawling around on the ground with like a, a Beats speaker in her yeah. mouth. Yeah. Like a gag. Yes. It's so... Um, so, so if it's a if there's a beat speaker, that means that Work Bitch is one of the more recent Britney songs. Yeah, that was yeah. like a few years ago. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think then, we're we're probably sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Go we're for probably it. forgetting. I would assume the most expensive music video of all time, but it's not considered a music video. Huh. It's, it's not considered a feature length. Is it Window Liquor? Good guess. I would assume Beyonce Lemonade is the oh, most expensive yeah. music Shit. video. The whole thing altogether. Yeah. That reminds me of something that I've been meaning to say for a while. <laughs> and this is this is taking me back several episodes. Get it off your chest. Whoa. I have to unburden myself. You love Beyonce. I love lemonade. You love lemonade. Yeah. Are you a Beyonce fan? Well, she didn't come to Kanye's wedding, but I'm <laughs> oh, oh, okay. All right. But I'm a fan, yes. Here's where I'm at. Whatever. I'm do just need, gonna do do we need to bleep this out? No. Well, I'll you be the judge. Beyonce, I feel, built this really great platform for herself with Lemonade. Yeah. With all like the powerful imagery, all the great songs, reconstructing herself, subjective history of herself as a black woman growing up in Houston. That sounds right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's awesome. And then coming off of that, with 2020 and George Floyd, she just evaporated. Like, so this, where the where the fuck are you, Beyonce? So this is a common complaint of a lot of the black artists who've been really good about tapping into the black experience, where they spent the year kind of in the shadows. Kendrick Lamar is another one. Um, it's funny because Kanye, joking aside, I mean he he was part of the protest in Chicago. He did that "Wash Us in the Blood," which I actually think is one of the more like low key mm -hmm. protest songs. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's uh, J Cole had this issue and he had a feud with no name who's a, a woman rapper and they were point is the industry is eating itself right because everyone's talking shit on each other like where were you put your money where your mouth is blah 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 so, blah, blah. so this I, is a common this is a common thing. i looked into it yeah. and beyonce is like raising her kids like yeah. she's got kids and she does engage in small ways and like charity events and stuff like that mm -hmm. but it seemed like she had this inertia this like momentum of this sort of identity mm -hmm. that she could have carried into this year this politically charged year that really if i may say so really needed a lot of black leadership and she just kind of let it die on the vine. So it's, it's a, I've, I've gone back and forth on this uh, as somebody who listens to predominantly, you know, black music mm -hmm. and, and contemporary rap. I think that putting themselves in the middle of the conversation actually takes away from, you know, blue collar people actually speaking up for themselves. Mm. However, I do think that artists often synthesize the zeitgeist and turn it into like a physical artifact. Okay. And I think that in the next year or two, we should see some stuff come out. So it's a little bit more of a long game yeah. uh, that, that happens with music. I always, yeah. I always found her to be kind of like Cleopatra-esque, kind of this, uh, especially after Lemonade, she became this real powerhouse, exotic, beautiful, strong black woman. Mm -hmm. But, you know, she never, she hardly ever does interviews. She hardly ever has photos of her where she's, smiling but she's always in her in her photo she's very like strong powerful sexy black woman yeah she's almost like kind of deified in a strange way yep. right now yep she's untouchable yeah and the fact that she doesn't give interviews hardly ever am i wrong correct 
I, I assume probably on her next album, because I feel like I feel like her albums are progressively getting uh, like way more into, you know, black culture, black community and, you know, praising being black. And right. she put out an album this year uh, about Lion, the, the Lion King live action movie, and she featured a bunch of African artists. But it didn't really work for me. Mm. It, it, was that it, the one where she was all painted up like a tiger? Probably. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So she did that. And then like Kendrick Lamar did Black Panther, what, a year or two ago. So same thing where it's like you have two people who've kind of crossed over and done these really Mm -hmm. glossy mass production things that kind of go away from their thing. Because like Beyonce is like Coachella performance is fucking nuts. Okay. Go watch her Coachella performance from a few years ago. Is that that the one where they have the, her dancers get shot? Yes. The beat of the music. Yes. Yeah, I was just going to bring that up. She's got this amazing, amazing live performance where it's to the song Pray You Catch Me. Mm. And every time the beat hits, one of her dancers is shot and oh. fall down. And it's it's extremely powerful. That album is so good. I have to listen to that album every time I fly because I hate flying mm-hmm. so much. And I'm so afraid that I have to blast Beyonce and that entire Lemonade album just to like get me through. I'm like, I can fucking, I can do this. If I die, I just fucking die. Like, I just, I just gotta be okay with the fact that I'm gonna die. Like, while like, that tears, is really the key to flying. Truly, truly. And like, while tears are streaming down my face, it's like, we're going down the runway because I'm so terrified. Josh knows this. It's true. It's all true. <laughs> and then we concluded the evening by watching the the music video where Axl Rose swims with dolphins. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is, I hadn't seen that before. He's got a total thing for dolphins. He's got a thing for dolphins. Totally. He doesn't. Me. <laughs> Me neither. Yeah. Me third. I yeah. was challenging it. Fuck dolphins. <laughs> Good, you passed my test. Get out of here. Everyone's talking about how smart dolphins are. It's like, all yeah. right, where are the dolphin cities? Where's the dolphin architecture? <laughs> If uh, dolphins are so smart. The Simpsons had an episode about that where the dolphins take over with like machine guns, right? Was uh, that the Simpsons or was that South Park? They would need opposable thumbs to craft said machine they guns. They have large enough cerebral cortex that they can do it psychically. That sounds... that <clears throat> science. I mean, okay. Science! science. Yeah. All right. Okay. I, you win. You win that one. That's my, that's my week. <laughs> nice. <laughs> hey, how about you, Allison? Um, I feel like my week was really busy. I wasn't feeling well. My My new job is a lot more physically demanding than I anticipated. And I'm still learning techniques and I'm still doing a lot of training. So by the end of my day, my my neck hurts so bad that I've had a constant headache for mm-hmm. like a week and a half, two weeks. Mm-hmm. Because of that, it makes like I'm not sleeping super well. So it makes me feel like I'm sick, even though I'm not. Mm-hmm. But so for the first like, I don't know, like Tuesday through Thursday, maybe I just I just was like a lethargic mass, just like floating from like cushiony surface area to cushiony surface area around the house complaining just like i'm just fucking tired and like like going to bed at like nine which is really early for me yeah i'm a, I'm a night owl i don't know but i sprang out of it like a couple days ago but i'm assuming like once i get the- she heard a special song and that like launched her out of what was it i don't remember yeah you do do i sick janet Oh, that's fucking right. They changed your whole perspective. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> I no, actually that's not true. You hopped out of your mood before that happened. It just I, don't, I don't know. That just that was just like let me find it's Christopher something. Let me look him up. Um What have I done? We're not gonna play the song, but it's just so good. Okay. Oh, so okay. Chris Chris Fleming Fleming is the name of the Instagram artist. Okay. Uh, so I guess he's a he's a stand up comedian. But he created, there's like this whole video of a, of a song that he created called Sick Jan. Mm-hmm. 
about someone working at H&R Block who was just like the most jaded, nihilistic, older turquoise hippie woman who was just super grumpy with her job. But she's obsessed with the idea that she's kind of like subverting the law a little bit to like get people help with their taxes. Or like she's like she's like the edge between law and order. Truly. I'm going to tell you what, Chris, this isn't looking good, but I'm going to do this for you. But if the, if the IRS finds out, we could go to jail for a long time. And then the song starts and it's absolutely ridiculous. And it really did accentuate the last three days of my life. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny how that works. When you sent it to me, I was like, thanks. I'm going to have that song stuck in my head. Yeah. As I, yeah. <clears throat> yes. All day. Yep. Sick Jan, we don't have to claim a home office. If it means I will go to jail. I, fuck yeah, it, it's, that's it's it. Great. I highly, yeah. I highly recommend that you guys check it out. Other than that, I don't know. We've watched a lot of TV we did do the back and forth of the music videos on Friday, which was fun. We got drunk and did the back and forth of the music videos, but it was mostly like... We may have had a few Chardonnays. Yeah, absolutely. A few. A few white wines. Like bottles? We finished a bottle. You finished a bottle. I finished a bottle. <laughs> Josh. Josh just sold you out on public access I'm, radio. That is fine. That is fine. I drink beer, the comfort food of alcohols. Mm-hmm. And I um, pretend that my wine is less caloric and that I'm totally fine. But we were doing back and forth of like songs that made us in our early 20s. Mm-hmm. And I had Josh listen to a 10 minute song called Strobe by Dead Mouse, where I was like, this was basically the fucking height of my drug use. And it's 10 minutes. And I'm sorry, but here Are we go. Are you familiar with Dead Mouse? Oh, yeah. Okay. Because yeah. I'm not really. That checks out the time, the place, yeah. the age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Strobe. Do you know that song? Uh, maybe like it might be like licensed in some sort of video game, like scrape skateboarding video game. It, it was my shit for like a couple of years there. I was like, have you guys heard strobe? <laughs> Everyone's smoking. They're like, Alison, please stop. I'm like, it's just like, it's just really chill. I'm just going to play it like again. So. <laughs> and I played a bunch of like electric wizard. I was definitely, I was giving you an edited version of myself. It was good though. I wasn't giving you like the, the raw the raw dog, Josh. Josh. <laughs> not, he, he saves not, that for not Friday, but <laughs> hey, yeah. He, he saves that version for the podcast. The raw dog version. The raw dog. <laughs> this is Josh Dog. Raw dog. Commission. <laughs> Given all the intimate details, he's not wearing, doesn't get to hear in private. <laughs> he's uh. not wearing any clothes right now. But yeah, that was my week yeah. and week. What about you, Brady? I watched the new movie by Kitty Green, the director of the movie we're going to talk about tonight. Her new movie is from last year. It's called The Assistant, and it stars Julia Garner. If you saw her, you would know her. She's like uh, Perks of Being a Wallflower. She was in uh, that Waco series that we watched. Okay. Oh, was she? Yeah. And she's also, I want to say, in um, oh yeah Ozark in yes. the okay. second season or something like that. Yeah. She's very striking looking. Yes. Yeah. So she plays a new assistant for a film production company. It is a New York production company, so it's a thinly veiled reference to like the Weinsteins, probably. There's a lot of subtext about the fact that the head of the film production studio likes to have sex with the actresses who are trying to get a part. The way that the aesthetics of the movie play out is that it really just follows the main character as she does mundane tasks of like getting the donuts, getting the coffee, cleaning up the trash, writing an email, answering phone calls. And so there's a lot of inference. And I thought that it was quite genius because if you think about the Me Too movement, 
women who came out and talked about their experiences were talking about a large aggregation of a lot of small things that added up to something big. This movie in the two hours of its length demonstrates that very well of like, well, you could interpret that. Oh, well, you know, like if you keep just biasing towards like assuming the best intent of that version of it, yeah. Mm. You know, you're complicit with what's going on. Right. So it does a good job of just like death by a thousand paper cuts and putting yourself in her shoes where she is wanting to be a producer herself. She's in a world of very, you know, strong willed men in their 40s to 60s. Mm. She's an attractive 20 something and they're going to exploit that as much as they possibly can legally and do all sorts of gaslighting and all that jazz. Okay. So, yes, Allison, no. I thought of, <laughs> I thought about, uh, I thought about you, and I was like, I think either Allison's going to absolutely love this movie, or it's going to make her want to throw her television out the window, or both. Probably, probably both. I mean, like literally last night, I was researching child sex trafficking in Portland. Nice. That's a so, good. That's a good Sunday night activity. Yeah, and I, I watched like a, I watched like a twenty-five minute like mini documentary about it. I am curious to watch it. Mm -hmm. I assume it will affirm the anger that I already have with me. <laughs> you know, like having worked in the industry mm -hmm. for the brief period of time that I did, it is so, so rampant. It's just all over the place. It just makes me so mad. It makes me so mad of just like having those meetings where you're just like, I fucking am super uncomfortable I feel like I know what you're doing, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe I'm misinterpreting the situation. Mm. Maybe you do just really want to help me with my career. Mm -hmm. That's fucking not the uh, case ever. <laughs> yes. So, so Kitty, I think, demonstrates, not to cut to the chase with tonight's movie, but she does such a good job of handling this very delicate situation with a little girl that I think that her experience with that, her experience you know, living in Ukraine and documenting her experience with women and children in Ukraine before casting John Bonet really pays dividends here with the assistant. And it's, I think she's really honing in on something with, you know, the process of making movies, whether it's the deconstructive stuff that we're going to talk about or whether it's actually the process of people in the industry. Mm. So she's carving out this nice little niche of like mm -hmm. kind of exposing the machinations of what we just consume in a polished 90 to 120 minute chunk. Yeah. So. I mean, she definitely has a running theme with like the face of Ukraine. Ukraine is not a brothel. Casting mm -hmm. John Bonet, the assistant. Like, there's definitely a, it's definitely a theme of thinly veiled victimizing of mm -hmm. women and young yeah. girls. So, well, on that note, yay! <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to leave you all a reminder to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We really do appreciate it. Or leave us a voicemail at solid6.net slash voicemail or email us at podcast at solid6.net. Today, we have a voicemail from a very famous actor. Oh, shit. Let's check in with him. Patrick Swayze. It's a Patrick Swayze. All right. This is Michael Caine. Oh, shit. Talking again. Last time I did a message for this fucking show, I got cut <laughs> off halfway through. <laughs> Little disturbing. Not going to lie. But anyway, just want to say I appreciate what you people do. Podcast continues to get better. Congratulations to Allison for getting a job. <laughs> <laughs> Not every time 
in this day and age when you see a woman actually be gamefully employed. I'm sure you are um, a stewardess or a secretary or a uh, uh, a maid of some sort. It's it's brilliant. I love it. It's good. Equality between the sexes is what I look for. Anyway, you guys do a brilliant job. Uh, you might want to fire Brady. It's a bit of a <laughs> bit of a drag on the conversation, quite frankly. And I don't even think he doesn't have a job, does he? Does he have a job? Does he work? Does he do anything? Josh, you should make an executive executive decision and get rid of him. But otherwise, <laughs> brilliant fucking podcast. And that's all I need to say about that. I need to get off and uh, fuck my lovely wife, Shakira. So, tiddly do, keep the walls away from the door. It was. Yeah, he got cut off again. Oh, man. <laughs> no, he misunderstood. I, I got a job at Hooters. Waitress. <laughs> it's a topless Hooters, actually. Wait, do we have. Oh, we have Acropolis. Yeah. So, Michael Kane doesn't Acropolis know. Acropolis is closing. <sighs> that's too bad. I'm happy that we were able to go for your 40th birthday. For Josh's 40th birthday, we surprised him by taking him to Acropolis, which is, for people that don't know, was like a super old uh, strip club slash steakhouse. Yeah, it's it's a, they call it uh, Steak and Legs. Steak and Legs. And it was great. It was good steak. It was a good and steak. And one super grumpy dancer. Like, no one was surrounding the stage at one point, so she just full up pulled her phone out and just stopped dancing. <laughs> just like oh she pissed it was great <laughs> last time i went to a strip club i had a similar experience where the stripper was being very aggro and just not giving anybody good vibes Mm-mm. and she eventually stopped and yelled at everybody and i was like <laughs> everybody look up here you know she was just like totally just getting in people's faces which obviously did the exact opposite thing you know but what, unlike though? unlike your friend at acropolis she kept going but she did the thing where she she went into the splits and as she did the split she was slamming her her pubic bone slash pelvis down into the ground Ooh. very aggressively like she was you know trying to was this dante's where was it good get that's a good guess it was union jacks oh, i've never been to union jacks it's, i've only i've only union heard jacks. the worst things about it i fucking hate union jacks i, I, I don't on the mic, whatever. Fuck Union Jacks. Yeah, for for, li- for listeners that don't know, also Portland has the most strip clubs per capita than any other city, including Las Vegas. Is that right? Is that true? I think that's true. Yes. Yeah, we have we have, and strip clubs up here are like totally different. They're not yeah, they're not like any other city. Yeah, it is very different up here for sure. Yeah, it's definitely like. It's a party and everyone's in on the party. It's, it's it's sexy, but it's mostly a party, right? It's like every every five bars in Portland is a strip club. Yeah. And basically, unlike a lot of strip clubs elsewhere, like sort of like the ladies are running the show. I've been to strip clubs in other towns and it doesn't it's not quite the same energy. Mm-hmm. I definitely prefer it here in Portland. Just because Yeah, they're fun. It's like they're not gouging you on drinks. The girls aren't like crazy aggressive. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a different but, culture, but yeah, fuck Union Jacks. That place sucks. When's the last time you guys went to Stripperoki? I've never been. Never been. You've never been to Stripperoki? Never been. Oh, that one's great. So that's like a that's like a Sunday night thing or something that they used to do at Lucky Devil. Where, oh, cool. Yeah, you would you would just like you go up, you pick your karaoke song, and then a gal dances. Devil's Point. Devil's Point excuse me. Josh is pointing out his door. Well, it's literally down the street, but uh, Devil's Point. You go up, you sing your song while a girl is like doing a striptease behind Have you. Have you been? Oh yeah. <laughs> Allison's offended. What did, what did you sing? Or did you get to sing? Okay. And I sang the my famous song, the Pussycat song. What was the response of the crowd? Uh, they seemed to like it, but I'm pretty sure they were cheering for the gal behind me. Because ah, like, yeah. <laughs> she's, 
<laughs> she's the one that's really, she's the show. Michael Caine brought us to this point. Yeah. Uh, Michael Caine, thank you so much for calling in. You Excuse know, we're, we're one step removed from asking the cat for consent. That's uh, I'm certain that's happening. Somewhere. You know, I, I play the game in my mind where it's like because uh, I'm so judgy and so like angry at my dad on like the Internet. I, I play this game where like, what are my future grandkids going to like annihilate me for? And it's going to be like you had pets in your house. They're slaves. You know, like the, 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 like the equivalency. Sure, of, yeah. What would you get in trouble? For? I hope not. You ate meat. You drove a V8 engined car father? Yeah. Do you think mine would just be like broadband sexual harassment? Like there's just no holds bar and no one's I would say immune that, to oh, my oh, sexual harassment? You know, if people want to, if people really pursue like the cancel culture, I, I suppose, but I feel like charm goes a long way. I'm definitely going to get canceled. <laughs> no, you're not going to get canceled. You're going to get thrown in fucking prison because we're heading towards a fascist state. Woo-woo! Yeah. Well, on that note, everybody, welcome. Hey, Yay. movie podcast. So, what's our movie? <laughs> Jesus, let's go. Let's get on this fucking movie. <laughs> You're sure about, about that? We're feeling it. Yes. Let's. <sighs> We've done forty of these fuckers. Boom! So. Hoist them up. Oh, is this our fortieth episode? This is fortieth. Oh my god! I you guys. To, I forgot to make an over the hill joke. Well, shit. Because we're gonna age out. Sure. No pun intended. Of age jokes. All right, everybody. On to our feature film. It's the morning of the 26th. The police were searching the house. That's when they opened the door to the wine cellar and saw her covered in her favorite white blanket. It was the biggest thing to happen to Boulder in a very long time. My name's Hannah, and I'm auditioning for the role of JonBenet Ramsey. Do you know who killed JonBenet Ramsey? I'm auditioning for the role of John Ramsey. I'm auditioning for the role of Patsy Ramsey. Okay, people, here we go. Patsy Ramsey was a beauty pageant queen herself. John Ramsey was a very successful man. There have been many stories about who killed Jean Benet. There was so much speculation. He was in Jean Benet's bedroom. It was a three-page ransom note. It still haunts me. There was a Santa Claus that was at the party. Oh, oh, oh! This is why I have a background check every year. In cases like that, it's always somebody you know. All right, y'all. We're covering casting Jean Benet from 2017, directed by Kitty Green. This movie is essentially a casting call that is a documentary about the family, the Ramsey family. Um, we have Patty, the mom. For those who haven't actually been checking out at Walgreens or uh, Walmart or whatever local grocer, 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 grocer. Thank you, Green Grocer. If you haven't gotten the National Enquirer or Post, what's the other? Yeah, like the the National Enquirer. 
is it just the post or is the Washington Post is actually legit? I don't remember. Yeah, the World News. World, World News. There we go. World, yeah. Okay. Point is, if you haven't been checking the tabloids, uh, we've got Patty the mom, you got John the dad, you got Burke the brother, you got Santa Claus, uh, you have John Mark Carr, and the you creep. have mm-hmm. John Bonet, the beauty queen child pageant. The six-year-old beauty Thank queen. You. Good. Yeah. Uh, way to clarify, because uh, that's partially why this uh, her murder is so famous. So won't really hash that out in the summary, but really this movie is about various people, act, uh, actors, actresses, wanting to play the role of this family and reenacting their roles during the night of Christmas uh, or the day after the 26th when she was found. Yes. So that's the simplest way. I wanted to keep it simple because right, giving trying to like uh, summarize this in the opening kind of yep takes the wind out of our sails in the conversation. So yeah, I'll pause there and just say, what do y'all think? I don't know. I'm I'm certain we have a lot of listeners that are you know around our age. But if we have any younger listeners or listeners outside of the U.S., like the Jean Benet Ramsey case happened, it was completely. Blown like just huge all over the media. What was it? Nineteen ninety six. Sounds right. Sounds right. Yes, yeah, it was, was nineteen ninety six. It was right after the O.J. Simpson case, which was like one of the first like huge like twenty four hour news 20, constant like suppression of the news. Yeah, just on a case. It was all you ever heard about when you turn the when you turn the news on. And so Jean Benet was quickly after after, and it was years of like if you were in a checkout line anywhere anywhere. Seeing a picture, the picture of Jean Bonnet when she's like, you know, the picture where it's like big blonde hair and her big blue eyes and her her little like pageant costume. Um, you still see that shit today. Oh yeah, it's I true. Was, yeah. I was there at Walgreens a couple of weeks ago and I was like, "What the fuck? Are we're you serious? Still ta- yeah, we're still yep. milking this shit. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's a. I mean, it's surround. It's surrounded by mystery. It's also surrounded by. Uh, there's a lot of conspiracy theory that surrounds the whole situation, but I think it's probably like the biggest unsolved case in the U.S., the most popular anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely one of them for sure. Yeah. So, uh, so, so we're not we're not a true crime podcast. So we'll we'll yeah. I want to focus mostly on the novelty of this movie. Of I'll do my best. <laughs> the novelty of this movie dealing with the actors. And how they kind of expose their own personal trauma in exploring yeah. these uh, characters, but I, I do think some setup is is in order. So, Allison, as the true crime expert of the show, I will do my best to hold it back. It's an interesting concept. You have multiple people coming in to play a single role. As the film progresses, uh, the actors open up more about their personal lives. A lot of them are local to the area. They have personal connections or stories with the actual tragedy. It all kind of like collage. It all it all becomes like a collage or this multi layered thing mm-hmm. at the very end of the film, where they're all everyone involved in playing these characters is basically playing out each poignant moment of the uh, like of the incident mm-hmm. all together at once. It's really it's really moving. Yeah, it's a it's an incredible idea for a cinematic experiment um, to use people from the local area as a way of having a like a like a reportage like a like a like a cinema investigation of the psychic impact that a big 
crime can have on a whole community because all the people are, are from approximately the area. Yeah. So they're all like recounting their own kind of connections as they essentially give some kind of like small sales pitch as to why they should be cast for a specific role. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, there is a, an unwitting confessional aspect of this that I think ultimately grows into, as Allison described, uh, like this, almost like, uh, uh, like, sorry, I always run to like sci-fi terms, but like, think about like, um, if time is a flat circle, <laughs> <laughs> then you have like the emotional bulk of like a moment, yes, like the dramatic superposition mm-hmm. of like every possible permutation of every possible exchange that the Ramses could have had in their living rooms and their hallways and John Bonet's bedroom, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, times a million. And that is kind of like the crescendo of the movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, personally, it took me a while to get into this movie. Like you used the phrase like locked in, like this movie had me locked in at this moment. Mm-hmm. And I would say that was probably about like halfway through the movie before it really had me because at the opening i was like well what's going on is this like a an off-the-cuff like light comedy thing like a waiting for guffman kind of thing exactly and then once you kind of break through Mm -hmm. that that first wave of interviews and then the um the actors and actresses who are trying out for the role and like taking on parts start to reveal more of themselves you realize oh wait it's a lot more yeah than just like a goofy people are stupid here's a comedy yes well said. I, I have to I have to admit that I I tried to watch this movie uh, like a couple years ago, and I couldn't make it past ten minutes because I th- I was so cringed out by watching the audition sequence between all the all the uh, women that were auditioning for Patsy Ramsey. Oh my god! Mm-hmm. Cat just jumped on soundboard. Did you get to the leather daddy? No, because I did not. Because if I got to no. Leather Daddy at that point, I probably would have stayed for the whole thing. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, he, you mean, he's the gateway. He's the gateway yeah. into... You mean William Tidwell? Mm-hmm. I, yeah. T- Tidwell? Tidwell. Uh, tit. Tidwell. Tidwell. Tid. Are you sure? Yes. I am positive. It's not Tidwell? It no, the man who likes breast torture's last name is not Listen, Tidwell. There's, right. this, there's the whole <laughs> narrative of the film of like telling maybe the th- like the main theory behind uh john benet ramsey's death through the emotional background of all of these different actors bringing their history to these roles and it's very moving and then you have fucking william tidwell who's just in his interview he's a non sequitur he's like a totally where it's like it's like a 10 minute section where you're like what the fuck where this guy but it's great he's like well like yeah i'm I'm a i'm a bounty hunter basically but like also um i'm a sex educator at night and that's not true he's super into bdsm well hang on a second isn't isn't a a, a, what are you not a dominator a dominator a leather daddy? Yeah. Isn't that kind of a sex education? Well, sure. Role? I'm sure that people will go and pay for his services or, he, you know, he's in a community. But it was just really funny to me that he's like, I'm a, a sex educator. And then he brings out all And this, he's got his whips in the room. Well, like, he's got his, like, cat of nine tails. And he brings mm-hmm. them out. He's like, these ones are more for, like, heavy play. And these ones mm-hmm. are for, like, soft play. Uh, soft play that you just kind of want to do a circular motion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a Flor- I'm, Excuse me, Florentine. Oh, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Brady. <laughs> <laughs> keep going and they're like oh, yeah like i'm really into like nipple and breast torture and mm-hmm. then it and then it changes the scene and i'm like yeah. what the fuck was that so <laughs> the person we're describing he is auditioning for the police chief so the format of this movie is that you're following a number of different actors who are dressed up as 
Patsy, the mom, John, the dad, Burke, the, the son, the police chief in this case of our BDSM friend, Santa Claus, who uh, was was there on the night before on Christmas. Bill McReynolds. Yes. John, um, what's his face? The creepiest guy in the store. John Mark Carr. Mm-hmm. I always forget his name because his his name sounds like some sort of food uh, menu item. I mean, it's three, it's, it's three first names, which is just serial killer all yeah, over. Yeah, that's like, yeah, you're going to kill a president. Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's some really key players in this story and different actors are signing up to play them. And what Josh and Allison have been describing is that as the movie goes along, you get a window into the actor's personal history and their motivations as to why they want to play this character or play the character of this real person, whether or not they relate to them, whether or not they're trying to process their own personal trauma through this person, whether they're judging the actual person, whether they're personally connected to the family in some roundabout way. And you then also get their color commentary about the actual crime itself. Right. So there's this like multi-layered thing going on where it's disorienting in a way at first. But once you lock into the rhythm of the movie, you're like, oh, this person has like a comedic side. This person is really sad. This person's like, to Allison's point, uh, cringy. They're like... Uh, yeah, like way off base. There's this guy who has this fucking weird, for example, cringy person who has this weird sideways mouth guy who talks about being in his community theater. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. With the premiere of, quote, my mother's Jewish lesbian Wiccan wedding, end quote. Um, who also blinks like a thousand times per yes. second. <laughs> so there's there's all these weird visual t- tics and just weirdos in this mm. movie as well. So it just really does a good job of providing a spectrum of humanity and the people who are interested in in this magnetic story and you get this cross-section of personal experiences mm-hmm. yeah about the the halfway mark like you said you start seeing it turn from like a comedic thing to like there's some crazy some fucking crazy stories that slowly unfold yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that you're like what yeah. the mm-hmm. fuck right yeah you know yeah. i was like i was like almost like standing up like yelling at the tv i was like what the fuck are yeah. you talking about the one patty ramsey actress whose three kids died and had her dad and, hit thrown at her, smash an axe into her head. Yeah. I'm sure she's had a lot of time to process and go through that grief, but man, she said it pretty deadpan for a moment. And then, you know, kind of, kind of gets emotional. But uh, when she said that whole story with like her father, Josh and I were like, what the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. And you, you kind of get like stories like that, not as extreme as that. That was probably the most pronounced example, but you essentially get like reflections of a community in aggregate about the whole case and like how it affects them. Everyone in, not everyone, most of the folks that are auditioning that towards the middle of the movie come out, they all have some kind of personal connection or some at least approximate connection to the case at hand. Or like major personal loss. Yes, yeah. or something that they can relate to like on a deeply personal level. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And their connection to the story often is a misattribution of reality. So you have the one uh, Patsy who refused to wear the the red shirt, who's in the blue shirt with the pearls, with the pearls. With the pearls mm-hmm. who clearly has some sort of, I wouldn't call it a vendetta, but some sort of point to prove of like, Patsy is the strong woman, I'm the strong woman. And it's yep. like this weird... You're right. Meta feminist like thing of like she's clearly Patsy. If you if you know the case, 
Patsy is the most obvious uh, suspect from a pop culture standpoint. Like there's enough evidence that like points to her and maybe not. I mean, maybe this is the point of like society judging or women and moms. And there's actually that dynamic at play in the movie as well. But point is, is that you have all these women who are intentionally lined up with red shirts and then all of a sudden it cuts to this woman who's in a blue shirt with pearls and a, a, a blazer. And you can tell she is like not fucking having it. She's not fucking there to like play into the Patsy thing. And you can see it from her her body language that she's just like, dude, I'm out to prove. She's got an X to grind. I'm, I want to be the contrarian because I want to challenge everyone's version of the status quo. It's true. And Brady, you're right. Like the one of the most mainstream, I mean, the most mainstream ideas is that Patsy Ramsey um, accidentally killed her out of a fit of rage uh, that her brother uh, Burke Mm -hmm. maybe uh, got angry and as a 10 year old boy just went too far. There's a whole lot of conspiracy theory around it, but I know that that was a lot of the women who were auditioning for this role were uh, justifying sometimes the irrationality that comes over a mother when they're exhausted and they're frustrated and their kids are you know getting under your skin yeah and the thing is that kitty green does i think to her credit into the film's benefit she gives space to all of like the speculation like you don't see every permutation of every scene play out but you see most of the, like the major like story arcs that have been given to this show or excuse me given to the jean benet case like shown on screen in some kind of foundational sort of way there was one angle that was not really explored, which I found interesting. Mm. Was that the basement angle? No, okay, it was about the dad being the one to do it. I don't know if you've noticed. Between- oh, because they needed to make a sacrifice for nine eleven. You mean? <laughs> Go on. So Allison, Allison, <laughs> yeah, let's, Allison, <laughs> uh, let's do it. Constipated with conspiracy. So yeah, why don't why don't you tell us that a little was, bit about your? Well, it was uh, one of the like far far out theories you know with like um the john ramsey working for um access access graphics which then kind of uh went into the major defense contractor lockheed martin and that if this is going to be like a masonic or um illuminati kind of worship like devil worship situation <laughs> that they needed to make a sacrifice and that jean benet was killed um, where she was six years old in 1996 and something else. So it, it made like 666. I know it's funny. Amateur hour. <laughs> right. But that this was, this was part. Um, and the fact that basically they were setting up for the planning of uh, the inside job of 9-11 and that uh, Jean Benet was a sacrifice in some manner to Moloch or whatever, it's fucking it goes all the way to the top and it's fucking <laughs> <laughs> follow the money ah, but yeah so there's I mean there's a whole other like wackadoo spectrum on it that like, <laughs> well, okay so hey like I I don't really follow a true crime like you do okay. and I'm gonna ask some dumb questions here is has John Benet been connected at all to this whole like Pizzagate QAnon, global pedophile ring stuff. Um, there's there's a suspicion that there is, um, just with the higher ups that uh, a a first of all being that she was a pageant girl and a child, like a, a like a baby, right. and she had won 
major crowns and 24 pageants, which means that she had probably been involved in lots of pageants, so many pageants in order to get to where she was. I mean, she, she was also going to be on the age of six at the age of six. So she's been in pageants as basically since she could walk. Exactly. And they're, and they're sexualized and they, and they make them into like, like tiny women, little dolls. Yeah, exactly. And so there's, there's a conspiracy theory that this is part of like monarch programming or, um, MK Ultra. Wait, what? I know. How does how does Monarch or MK Ultra get involved? Because because part of part of Monarch programming or MK Ultra programming is that uh, people are basically subjected to sexual torture or um, oh, manipulation, so they disassociate to, to break so them down. In those moments of disassociation, you can kind of train them to be like these fucking like sleeper cell super spies. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and anyway, so that's that's the theory. There was also our cat Johnny is scratching his post right now. He's being adorable. But there's also this whole thing that kind of connects to the Franklin cover-up that happened in 1988 that was happening in Nebraska with child child sex trafficking. Okay, what's what's the, what's the Franklin cover-up? <laughs> Which is, it was basically like sex, uh, sex trafficking with children through people that were um, like politicians, megastars, basically people, millionaires and billionaires mm. that were uh-huh. child sex trafficking, uh, like Trump or Jeffrey Epstein. Got it. Um a hundred percent those fucking two. So, but when they found her body, they found some trauma to her, uh, her vulva. And, uh, but it, but, but it wasn't anything that couldn't also be described by like the fact that she wore tights constantly and was dancing. Mm. and was like always like it, it wasn't enough to insinuate that there had been mm-hmm. sexual trauma. So it wasn't conspicuous or definitive. It was it, just, exactly. but, it was, but it was something was going on. Exactly. But also being said that almost exclusively, if a child is found dead in the home where, where they live, that it's almost a hundred percent of the time because they've been dealing with, um, lifelong abuse or sexual abuse. Mm. And it's almost exclusively always a family member. Mm. However, um, the, the Ramses were also like exonerated, basically like a FBI agent came in and they were like, there's no way that the, the Ramses were involved with this. This is someone coming into the home. Um, and this is part of the quote unquote fun. And this it's perverted to say that, but it, yeah. that, that is the mystery. On, on, well, it's also fun for people who are so far removed from the family that they see this as this exotic story that could be in a movie. Right. And you know, there's so many obvious things at play here where it's like a ransom note that's three, three pages long that's handwritten that is the exact amount that the ransom note is asking for the same amount of money as his, as John's bonus. Mm-hmm. It's um, also, it's, it's an 85% match to Patsy Ramsey's handwriting. Right. So you have yeah. that and it's, it's using a pen from the home and she had head trauma. Uh, John Benet had head trauma and then she was strangled and, and yet it's a ransom note. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and um, she's in the basement. So there, there's some really, I mean, Occam's razor, y'all, like fucking just like the most obvious thing here is probably what it is. So um, it's really fascinating to see people in this movie, kind of bringing it back to the movie, kind of project their own personal insecurities or their own personal agendas totally. onto the story. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. And it's a really good movie to watch now, given our person our our current political climate, because you have all sorts of people right now in our country projecting their own personal insecurities and creating their own narratives of what's going on. 
Other than just like the high level stuff, I haven't listened to all the information. What do you guys think happened? Like in all likelihood, not 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 definitively, uh, but my answer is probably simpler than Allison's. Okay, so back to what my comment about Occam, Occam's razor. Like the most obvious answer is probably the right answer. It it was it was the mom. You think so? Yeah, she, she she got frustrated and she killed her kid. Yeah, on accident. Yeah. Well, here's my here's why I don't think it's her mom mm-hmm. because her cause of death was asphyxiation through the use of a garrote. Is that how you say it? Uh-huh. Garot. So, which for those that don't know, is basically it's the two sticks that have the the line in between that you twist around someone's neck and you pull, like you see in like spy movies. Like, yeah, like a little like you're gonna strangle somebody. Yeah, like the piano wire. Piano wire. Yeah. yeah, like so. That's why, like, an accident is one thing. Like, if her mom got super upset and like whacked her over the head um, because mm-hmm. she had she had a, a skull fracture. But to then go and like strangle the child seems really extra, especially yeah. for a parent to do. So there's this whole theory that someone got into the basement, basically, that someone could... A non-family member. A non-family member got into the basement mm-hmm. uh, because they did keep like a window open to string Chris to pull wire through to string Christmas lights. However, there were cobwebs all over the place that were not disturbed. Uh, there was dust on the windowsill right, that right, wasn't right. disturbed. So someone was in the house. They used a stun gun on Jean Benet to incapacitate her from most reports started molesting her and she woke up and screamed and then probably took the stun gun and hit her in the head to get her to stop screaming because the neighbors report hearing a scream around two in the morning. The movie doesn't even go down this route of Mm -hmm. a stun gun or the stun gun being an impact implement. Yeah. So, but that's, that, that is a theory that, uh, whomever was in there used a stun gun to incapacitate her, began to molest her. And then, but I assume the stun gun was part of the police report. I believe. Okay. So I will double check that, but so would a stun gun leave physical evidence? Well, it probably leaves a mark on the body. The thing about a stun gun, though, is that it doesn't, in my knowledge of it, what it, it has a it has a cumulative effect. So you don't feel it right away, but all like maybe like a minute or two later, your body will your muscles will not respond. Mm. It's not like a taser where mm-hmm. um, it, it get, like gets you like that. Like a stun gun, like it does something to your muscles that like thirty seconds to a minute later you can't move. Well, yeah, because the the signal. Yeah. So I want to I want to dip in and out of the of the family with the movie. And that's part of the fun of this movie, frankly. So back to the BDSM guy, it's fucking, (laughs) it's fucking bleak, but clever and fucking insightful that like here you have this conversation about strangulation and here he's talking about restraint. He's talking about like, Hey, I know because he's like, in order to do this, you got to have a lot of restraint. And he, at this point is established as the best expert in the movie to have an opinion on mm. restraint. And it's true because she also had, she had a nylon ties or something yes. around her wrists yes. that were like leaving a mark. And he said to do that, it had to be exception, exceptionally strong. And at that point, this movie had me because I was like, holy shit, this fucking bounty hunter, uh, aka fugitive, what what was it called? Fugitive a fug- recovery agent. Yeah, he's yeah. a bounty hunter. I don't know. Yeah, what yeah bounty hunter, about. aka a sex educator at night for BDSM classes being the most compelling or convincing person about 
her being bound. I was like, okay, this movie is fucking clever as shit. And mm. that's at that point I became galaxy brains, like the filmmakers. And I was like, okay, like how do I connect all sorts of different oh, oh, personal oh. connections? Oh, but I'm sorry. But to yeah. your, to your point, Brady, when they made the garot, garot, mm-hmm. it was Patsy Ramsey's paintbrush that they broke in half to make it. So it belonged to Patsy Ramsey. So I, <laughs> So I don't know anything about this case really, but just from the high level stuff, what seems suspicious to me about it is the confidence that a killer would have in taking the time to write a three page ransom note mm-hmm. as a red herring for a dead girl that's already in the basement. And, and this could be a total coincidence, but you find the girl's favorite blanket mm-hmm. to cover her with. Mm-hmm. Some of these things seem like this is a cover up from the mom or she's involved somehow. I, yeah, I, I also agree. There's, there's a theory that her brother got upset and, uh, just hit her too hard Mm. and the, the folks found it and are trying to cover up for the brother because the thing is they, they, they have never found what, uh, what she had her head trauma from. Right. So the only there's, there's basically all the evidence, so to speak is gone because a it was mishandled right because it was a rookie right yeah a rookie came in but also they had like a victim's advocacy group that came in and in order to like quote unquote support patsy ramsey started cleaning her kitchen oh my god and then they didn't secure jean bonnet's bedroom until two hours later and then they just didn't secure the rest of the house and so here's a follow-up question based on that why did the feds or the police in uh, boulder give the ramseys such a light touch in terms of interrogation or their treatment because it seems like it seems like they had uh, sort of the control over how they were interviewed because they they apparently would only make a handful of statements. They weren't talking to the police. Everything was extremely controlled and they, scripted well, from they, their perspective. Yeah, they lawyered up really quickly too, which is right. you know, well, I mean, which seem which seems suspicious to people that don't have money. <laughs> yeah. But um, also, I mean, at that year, I mean, he was known as the biggest entrepreneur in Boulder. Yeah. I mean, he was the CEO of a hot shit. You know, mm, tech, tech company, tech company. Yeah. Well, actually, the FBI didn't do a lot. They they came they came for like a half hour to an hour. They wired the house, and some people think they wired the house to see if Patsy or John had anything to do with it. Would spill the beans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because um because they Lockheed Martin had all of these protocols in place to protect the families, mm. and for whatever reason they dropped the ball, particularly with the Ramsey family. What do you mean they had protocols in place to protect families? Well, I mean they're higher up. They're working for defense contractors. They need. They need security, <laughs> right. you know, and, and, yeah. and I've worked they, with tech people. I mean, there's basically privatized government type of behavior, technocracy kind of shit mm. at play. Mm-hmm. I mean, we watched devs earlier this year. I mean, you know, it's like yep. that shit's real of yeah. like you have your own private HR com- uh, uh, departments that are actually kind of small legal mm-hmm. yeah. uh, firms. So, yeah. And they, and they have things in place to offer families protection in, the, in this corporation. But for whatever reason, they just like didn't give a shit about the Ramseys. Okay. Like they're, they're just so little was done in order to secure the crime scene and get interviews and lock it down and find evidence. Like so, li- so, so very little was done mm. in such a high, high profile family that um, right. it's, it's, that's also really suspicious. The reasons why this case got blown out of proportion is obviously, or when I say blown out of proportion is one of the reasons why we're talking about this case and why Kitty Green would have even made this movie is because this thing got hugely sensationalized in all the papers everywhere. 
because it's this kind of peculiar situation of this uh, little girl that was murdered who was a beauty queen. So there's a lot of like this interest of like parental judgment. Like what kind of parents are you guys being? So there's all these things that add up. It's like John Bonet's mom was in the industry, which unto itself, like child pageantry is a novelty that is very much an American thing. Yeah. You have a dad who is the hot shit CEO entrepreneur of the year for a company who got bought by Lockheed Martin. So I think there's a lot of that, but also frankly, just it's very clear. It's like OJ, right? Like OJ was a big thing in the tabloids because it was clear that he killed Nicole. Right. And years later, I mean, with the ESPN documentary that came out two years ago, like all the evidence from that and just hindsight, it's it's clear he killed her. Yeah. And I think that there is that elephant in the room with the tabloids of like, dude, it's fuck it's fucking staring us right in the fucking face, but these people have money. Right. This you yeah. have they have connections. Yeah, connections. Huge connections. So <laughs> Illuminati connections, everybody. So in a lot of ways, Ooh. like the subtext of this whole story is like, how are they gonna get away with it this time? How are they gonna get away with it yeah, this yeah. time? Like yeah, yeah. what are they gonna do now? Like what's their press conference gonna look like? What's their what's their fucking memoir autobiography about her own experience going to expose about herself, right? It's like they're in, the family is inviting these little breadcrumbs yeah. to say like, what is it about this fucking family? I guess what I mean with the sensationalism and like the tabloids to your point too, yeah, yeah. is that with John Benet and OJ Simpson and some of these other huge, huge uh, crime cases that got like blown all over the media in the nineties specifically, there's like this national focus to where the audience wasn't just like the friends and family of the Ramses or the community of Boulder. It was a national audience. Mm -hmm. And as people who are buying these tabloids and watching these TV shows, we're all kind of like part of it. Complicit. Well, not, well, I would say complicit in the media aspect. We're feeding the machine, but not necessarily in terms of like the, we don't feel the pain of the crime having been committed. Like we're several steps removed from that. Mm -hmm. It remains to Brady's point, fictionalized in our brain as if it's just a story. Mm -hmm. But the point is we collectively have a connection to this thing. And I think that's kind of Kitty's point too. Well, I, I agree with that. Cause I, I, I vividly, vividly remember. I mean, after the OJ, I remember the Bronco chase. I remember the trial. I remember the glove situation. And then after that, I remember vividly, Seeing Jean Benet all over the news, all over the tabloids. I mean, it was it was inescapable. Right. It was all over the place, and I because th this was that's what the '90s really churned out as a machine was uh, these these super politicized trials, mm -hmm. um, and it was everywhere. And I think we have to talk about Kitty Green's collection of films rather than honing in yeah, on yeah. one at a time because yep. I don't know necessarily that. Casting Jean Benet is specifically about the crime, or is it more about what happened to this little girl as being sexually exploited, and and kind of the aftermath that came with that? Mm. So we're looking at you know she has the assistant. We have um, Ukraine is not a brothel. We have the face of Ukraine. A lot of her films revolve around the normalized sexualization of women. Mm -hmm. especially per whatever culture they're in in American culture, especially in um, the Southern States pageants are huge. Mm -hmm. It's just how it goes. And it's totally normal. 
totally normal to get started at a young age. People don't think twice about it. But I don't think that these mothers or fathers or whomever see the danger of putting a, a, a child, a young, young child into a role as a sexual woman mm. to parade on stage and have big hair and have those falsy teeth that they wear and, and show their thighs, especially for like how prevalent uh, pedophilia and sexual predators are everywhere. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, th- I believe that there were 32 convicted sexual offenders within two miles of the Ramsey's home. <laughs> that seems like a lot. Mm-hmm. That's pretty normal. Is it really? Yeah, I mean, I've checked our own house. We've got like we've got like thirty plus just in a just in a mile. Ra- we got we've got some we've got a rapist. I'm not kidding. We have a rapist down the street somewhere. When I checked Megan's law, Jesus. So it's not you know as long as they're twenty or like a mile away from a school. I don't fucking know. But Allison talking about the exploitation. You know, it thought it made me think about the scene with the Santa Clauses where that one Santa Claus that was fully costumed, you could tell like of the different Santa Clauses, you know, you had like the Harley Davidson writer, you had like the Jeff Bridges looking guy and you had the one Santa Claus that was like fucking too legit to quit. Like he just was fucking father Christmas. Yes. He was in it to win it. And, you know, he was talking about how he just wanted to make people happy. And it was like, it, he said it was more addictive than heroin. Yeah. And I it, I thought in that moment, by that point, the Santa Claus stuff happened about an hour in. And I connected that back to Patsy and the addiction that Patsy had to pageantry and being liked by people. Mm-hmm. Well, to be fair, the Santa Claus wasn't a professional Santa Claus. The Santa Claus that was in true life there to be Santa for the party, for the Christmas party, was part of the company. Um, his name, his name was Bill McReynolds, and mm-hmm. he was—I think he was the boss—and he just dressed up as Santa. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a professional Santa, just to like separate that. Because oh, you I, mean in real life? In real, in true yeah. real so life. So I'm, t- I'm talking yes. about the the professional Santa Claus that tried out to play yes. the because prof- professional. professional Santa Claus have like a whole yeah. like code of honor, right? <laughs> right, like so clowns. just like. Well, yes. or just like pageant yeah. moms, oh. right? So that's what I'm trying to say is oh, that there, see, there's see. this con- gotcha. like connection of of pageantry to mall Santas. I gotcha. That she's intentionally editing into the movie that's like, oh. hey, this love of people's adoration for me and my daughter is addictive more than heroin. Well, they... Oh shit, dude! Brady. Uh, dude, shit, Brady. This is my experience ah! with this movie, and I was sober when I watched the movie. I was like, "Holy fucking shit, humanity!" Well, they they, <laughs> they do insinuate that Patsy Ramsey may have had multiple. I'm sorry, they do insinuate that Patsy Ramsey may may have had borderline personality disorder. When when did they? I mean, like they talked about they, the, the they, one. Yeah, they had but, the one mom who, uh, or they had the one actress playing Patsy Ramsey talking about her experience with her mother. Right. But also with some of the stories that were coming out about how perhaps unhinged Patsy Ramsey was, mm-hmm. and uh, kind of her like unpredictable behavior that right. they they were kind of trying to hang the coat on Patsy Ramsey that she maybe maybe had a personality disorder. So they were so basically they were, they were polluting the waters with this information from this personal story to possibly feed it into the suggestion it, yes, that to, maybe, maybe Patsy, Patsy Ramsey was, lost okay. her temper. Yeah. And you know, lost control. All right. 
so we're dipping in and out of reality of the case and the reality of the actors. And if it's confusing to listeners, that's because the movie is intentionally trying to cause you to uh, float in and out of watching these people connecting it to the real case, your own personal judgment of the actor, your own personal judgment of the real family. And so there's this like crazy multi-layered, like checking in with yourself thing. Am I judging this person? Is it them actually projecting the truth? The situation is that the, you know, it's, it's, it's fucking, it's fucking bananas. So you were talking about this being a meta documentary and I don't mm-hmm. actually, I don't have a good definition of that for myself. I don't actually know what that is. Yeah, good question. So I was kind of looking around. I mean, it's something that I've been playing in the kiddie pool with for the last like five to 10 years with a couple of friends who are documentary filmmakers, uh, including our one and only guest up to this point, Torben. Um, So (laughs) I was like, oh, I know it. You know, if you know, you know, like I know it when I see it. Then I was like, actually preparing for the show, I should probably prepare something. And I, was start trying to write something up and then I found found something that was was better written than I could say by a person uh, named Amy Isaac. Uh, and I found this on Letterboxd. Amy says, quote, a meta narrative documentary must consist of at least two layers of storytelling. Most typically, one layer involves the subjects of the documentary, i.e. the narrative while an additional layer or layers must explore the act of making the film itself, i.e. the meta-narrative. These meta-narratives can be presented in a variety of ways. Sometimes the delineation between the narrative and the meta-narrative is very clearly defined, but often the boundaries of the layers of storytelling are blurred or become so over the course of the film. Mm. So this is often also synonymous with deconstructive narratives, which is a broader term where you're basically looking at the story, um, not just from documentaries, but also fourth wall stuff where the filmmaker is intentionally saying like, hey, I'm making a movie. So let's talk about movies or stories in general. Yeah, I mean, there's tons of fourth wall breaks. I mean, there's like lots of movies where the subject of of a narrative will address the audience directly. Yeah. As a narrator, but also as kind of like an inclusive of their own experience. Mm-hmm. So, um, like Fight Club, or could being, we say that like Bombshell was a meta documentary? No, I think I wouldn't say that that that's a meta documentary because there's narration, but you're not really in, like your experience isn't a part of the process of the. It's just a story. What about Is, Wet Hot American Summer? <laughs> you tell me. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> That's a documentary, kind of. I would say of the of the people in terms of like in terms, <laughs> of, in terms of fictions. I would say that like being John Malkovich applies yeah. okay. because you, as an audience member, are carrying your own impressions of John Malkovich in like the real world as he exists as a character in mm. this. You could also say the same thing about Ocean's Twelve because I know that's a very specific reference, but. In the movie, I guess I, there's Julia Roberts' is character who's asked to play Julia Roberts, the real person in the movie. So I guess what I'm saying is it's taking audience experiences of real people and bringing it into a fictional space. While also telling a narrative? While also telling I a guess, story. I guess I'll have to... I, I'll have Cabin to in the Woods, Schenectady, New York. So that's, those are meta-narratives, but they're not documentaries. Right. Okay, sure. Right. So examples, sorry, do you want to keep going? Or no, I mean, I, I, can, I could keep going, but okay. 
So examples of meta documentaries, you know, you think of like uh, a famous one is like Act of Killing, which follows like Indonesian uh, war criminals who are reenacting them killing people who were ethnically or racially Chinese. And Fuck, that's rough. <laughs> that's contemporary. And they're basically doing it under the guise of like being action heroes. And they're like, check out this thing that I did. And the filmmaker, this, this white dude who's following them. Oh, God. And it's like, hey, this it's a documentary. But again, they're kind of reenacting the things they did back uh, in the 70s. So oh that, that is a meta documentary. That's crazy. Another one is like close up. So there's a, this is an Iranian documentary by Abbas Kiristami, who follows a guy who impersonated a filmmaker to get in cahoots with the family saying like, Hey, I'm filming, I'm making a film and I want it to like be about your family and it's going to be a fictional movie. The family comes to find out that he is a fraud. And so he is tried in court. And so the filmmakers are documenting this guy who's a fraud in court who is playing a fraud in real life. Oh, my God. And then here's the extra layer. The documentary filmmakers ask him to reenact him (gasps) impersonating the the person. So you got two layers. I see. Okay. Okay. So okay. those, this is the kind of thing with meta documentaries. So those are like, those are like heady, those are heady ones. I just described heady ones, but like one that's like, a, like exit through the gift shop. Yes. Okay. Yay! Yay! <laughs> I think I, I, I'm getting it. I understand. Yes. Yay. That is a, probably one of the, the better famous examples of, yes. I feel like, smart. <laughs> <laughs> I did it. I know a thing. <laughs> Yeah, just to even out uh, some of the serious ones that I brought up, the last one I'll bring up is Finding Francis, which is the series finale of uh, Nathan for You on Comedy Central. We tried a couple episodes. Oh, yeah, it's good. I like it. So this this uh, show lasted four seasons, and so the last episode on the fourth season is a feature-length movie where <laughs> Nathan is helping the Bill Gates impersonator from like the second season to find his high school love. And what makes it a meta documentary is that Nathan is inserting himself as the filmmaker into the movie and describing his own experience, trying to help this guy find his high school love. You uh, see what I'm saying? Yeah, so like, okay, it's, okay. Yeah. So it's like, you're, you're like following the, the making of the movie while the movie maker is making the movie. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. I, Does that help? I or did feel, I just totally make no, it more No, no, no. I just, cloudy? I feel like I'm going to go all the way back around to when you said you just know when you see it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say that to, to uh, add like my own little two cents, I do kind of appreciate the way that Kitty Green is doing it with this movie where she's kind of, as opposed to Nathan Fielding, she's kind of getting out of the way of the movie and she's letting these other people kind of yeah, yeah. do it, mm-hmm. say it from their own experience as like, I guess like sort of, if not locals, then like at least from the region and some of these people have some personal connections or whatever. Yeah. The one thing, and I learned this from watching uh, French New Wave movies, I think it was like uh, Jean-Luc Godard who said something along the lines of like editing is a choice. So point is, is like no matter how hard you Uh, try to like project real life, the moment you edit, you are making a choice. You are having an opinion about mm -hmm. the footage that you have. If we want to actually consider Kitty's motivations, we have to think about the edit choices that she makes 
and why she made them in the sequence she did, why she picked the people that she did, and so on. So, for example, there was about 200 people who tried out for this. There was about 70 people who are in the movie. Why did she reject the other 130 people? Is it because they weren't willing to open up in a very intimate public way? Is it because they were bad actors? Oh, right. Well, I don't think that's the standard yeah. because right. So, so think, yeah. So start thinking about her motivations. Yeah. And th- what does that mean? She uh, was, I guess, collecting characters. Right. Yeah. So what was her criteria? I gotcha. I gotcha. Mm. I don't know. That's, that's, that's an open-ended question. That's what, that's what, that's again, another fucking meta layer on watching this movie of like, why did she pick this person? Why did she pick this person? It's and not- as somebody who like, by no means is it is complicated, but as somebody who edits a podcast, it's like, there's these choices that you have to make mm-hmm. that like, Hey, why did I keep this thing? Why didn't I keep this thing? Is it because I made a conscious cho- choice about something or is it because I had a good day? Did I have a bad day? I'm just trying to make us sound smarter. Exactly. So <laughs> that's the criteria. <laughs> What is Allison's version of making it sound smarter, right? And so that's the fucking like infinite loop about these kinds of movies that I just love because it's an unanswerable question. You fall down. This is this is the good version of Inception. This is what Christopher Nolan's trying to do with Inception, and he fucked it up. But this is the good version of that. Lick slips. (laughs) I don't think he fucked it up. Really? Are you going to go against my stance on Inception right now? Four episodes later? I think that Inception is a fine movie. I feel like all the criticism that's been levied against it is valid. I still think people can like it. The movie has been building to this point where you are kind of seeing different people playing specifically Patsy and John who are bringing their own personal trauma to the situation or maybe not trauma, not everyone's trauma, but I'd say the majority of them have trauma, but some of them it's more curiosity or they're tangentially involved like that John that was dating the person who was going to succeed. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The actual John. And yeah. he was the alibi for the woman. Right. Oh, so, God. so he didn't have trauma, but he was at least involved like circumstantially. So yeah. anyway, you, you have all these different data points of people bringing their own motivations to being a part of this. And then the final scene is John's and the Patsy's who are paired up and acting different versions of, what happened that night, bringing their own personal <laughs> shit to the movie and they're acting in the same rooms together. So they would actually run into each other. This isn't a ghost like CGI thing. This is like, they're literally they're physically all, all in the same room. Yeah. It's a crowd of people. And then it ends. So it slowly is like zooming out and it ends with a camera crew who's doing a dolly shot. So you have the camera actually following the camera crew <laughs> That's the fucking real world Inception. And I would say that's probably better you than know Inception, bitches. It, it was so well done. It was so well done. And my interpretation of it was that it was it was different moments in a timeline. So I didn't take it as different scenarios. I took it as different moments in the timeline of the evening. So there was you're saying there's one timeline? That was my interpretation, was that there was one timeline and that they were all playing out like a two-minute window of that timeline. 
my impression was that we were seeing every possible permutation yeah. of the evening that all truths are equally true and that these actors are actually bringing their own perspective to the the scene as to what's going on and just letting it run roughshod across the course of the set. You know what? I like your idea and I'm going to go with it. Okay. There was uh, one version of that involved in this with John Mark Carr. Yes. Where he's actually slinking down the hallway. Yes. So, oh, really? Yeah. So this okay. is the guy who falsely turned himself in to, so you know, uh, admit to the murderer. He did a false confession, false saying confession. that he was the he was sexually attracted to yes. Jean Bonnet and that he wanted to be with her sexually yes. and killed her. Right. So the movie's kind of tipping its hat to the fact that like, hey, there's lots of different there's possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. John Mark Carr. Uh, he was in Thailand at the time, and he wanted to make a cult of uh, small beauty pageants. Like that was part of his shtick. Um, he married a girl in Alabama when she was 13. This is mm. in the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he turned himself in and threw DNA evidence. He wasn't there. Yeah, they there mm. was zero evidence leaking him to right. the to the murder. So, so he was in, just insinuating himself into the case. Right. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. is, is in, in a weird way, its own kind of sexual violence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the brilliance of casting John Bonet, the movie we're talking about tonight. I have to clarify that because there's a lot not of casting well, the, the I mean, girls. You can't you can't talk about you can't talk about the meta documentary without yeah. talking. I mean, it's such a it's such keep- a it's a cement mixer of information about this yes. crime, and you can't talk about the film without going into the details of the crime. Exactly. So another point in this movie that's just so brilliant is this guy is a very fascinating person in real life and it could have been a throwaway character in this story, but they saved one of the most powerful scenes in the movie for the guy playing him. It was really upsetting. And what made it upsetting is the fact that the dude was slipping in and out of playing John and being himself. So his name is Dixon White. Dixon White is the actor. Dixon starts out just talking about the the family and his own opinions, just like everybody else in it. But what sets him apart from every other person in the movie, with maybe the exception of one person or two people I can think of, is that he slips into this guy, that being this guy, like nobody else in this movie, where he is like lamenting, like being in prison, his confession, and it's like haunting. It's like you're yeah. watching a big blockbuster movie yeah. and you're like, oh, you're seeing one of the best actors ever. Yeah. And you're like, holy shit, this is really disturbing. You know, that was my impression as well. This That guy was obviously, um, either he plays a lot of creeps or he's naturally a creep, but he like slid right in there really easy. And his performance as the, the pedo guy was captivating uh, and, in that in that moment where you're talking about the interview. This is this is super weird, but he reminded me of Brad Dourif in The Exorcist Three. <laughs> I know, I know, it's very but, specific. I know, but you know how he Brad Dourif switches between uh, like Patient X and oh, like right. the Gemini Killer. Like they go back and forth, and you finally get the idea. Like oh, oh, oh like it's he's playing both characters. Like when he was talking and he's in a cell when he's talking and he's hunched over and, and he's, he's wearing his like prison outfit. Yeah. And he, and he really, he does his character research by looking at pageant videos and looking at pictures of Jean Benet mm-hmm. and then like basically training himself to be 
infatuated and in love with Jean Bonnet. Yes. And it, re- I found it incredibly disturbing. It was very disturbing. Okay, so he went from talking as a normal human being, like like everybody else in the movie. They're like, okay, like they're bringing their own personal shit or their own personal insights. And then all of a sudden he slips into being John. And then he slips out of it. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, yeah, as I, as I was preparing, you know, as John Mark Carr. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, you're she's prepared. a very, she's very, she's a very pretty girl. Right. Like, so it was like he nonchalantly brought up his own personal opinion, but like he tried to caveat it very quickly as John Mark Carr. And so it, it, it the, the waters are very muddy as to mm-hmm. whether or not he's just like a really good actor versus like he relates to John Mark Carr so much that he can play him this well. And I am not, I'm not victim blaming and I'm also not like, perpetrator advocating at all but when you look at photos of jean benet she's a beautiful beautiful little girl like beautiful little girl and the only solace i have is that really beautiful children become ugly adults (laughs) but (laughs) but they they make her into like like an they make her into like an 80s bombshell like i'm sorry she's got the big hair she's got she these, looks ridiculous she's she's a cutie pie she's a cute kid she but looks ridiculous I, like look at this photo right here sorry that's uh, look at that i'm not into that look at that like, i mean okay so wild. in this photo that's that fucked up in this photo that i pulled up she, not even that's not even like naughty or whatever that's fucked up it's fucked up it's like she she's got a white blouse on her hair is kind of like brushed back but she has the open parted lips and like the the sexy distant stare of like a woman, mm-hmm. right. you know, a grown ass woman. Yeah. But she, we don't, I don't even know how old she is in that photo. She might be five, six, mm-hmm. full makeup, full lips. It's, this is what her parents did to her. Yes. And I'm not victim blaming at all, but it's just like, it's disturbing. It's upsetting. Right. It's, so it's, that's what sell tabloids, man. So seesawing back and forth between reality and the movie. So we have the 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 patsies where some of them are like, you know, this is terrible what she did to her daughter. You know, they're reading the memoir out loud and she, they're like, wow, this woman's so narcissistic because it's, it's like she's clearly talking about herself instead of her daughter passing away. And then there was like that woman, again, that one woman who was in the blue top. The oh, pearls yeah. that was unlike anybody else. And she was like totally getting into the character again, similar to the <laughs> Dixon guy who plays John Mark Carr, who was acting like a narcissist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we have similar echoes there. And then you have like last but not least, you have the little girls playing John Bonet. This movie was three years ago. So obviously a bunch of six or seven year olds have never really known this yeah, case. They don't know. Yeah. And so you have the meta element of a bunch of girls who are receiving makeup, who are getting wigs, who are like eating cookies, eating and, cookies. And I think I think Kitty Green does a really really good job making Absolutely. making them children. Absolutely, making them children in makeup. Absolutely, which to, to emphasize that they are children. Yes, which basically brings the point home that she's not doing it because of her own fucking free will. It's because she's getting attention. And she's curious, like a little kid would be, as to the novelty of getting makeup. Oh and yeah, I mean, I mean, when I was a little girl, like I used, to, like tiny, tiny little girl, like I used to love to put like my mom's lipstick on. I used to love to put on her high heel shoes. If she, like, I wanted a feather boa more than I could even express to you when I was a kid. Like I just, 
I wanted I wanted those tiny little like high heel shoes that had like the feathers over the arch of the foot. Like mm-hmm. I wanted all the girly shit. And and so I'm certain that there's an aspect of it that is so fun to be able to dress up and 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 be so hyper feminine. But I don't think I don't I know for a fact that they don't realize what the ultimate outcome of doing that becomes. Exactly. I mean, this is not my joke. I, I am not claiming mm-hmm. this as my own, but they've outlawed this. They've outlawed child pageantry in France. <laughs> in France. Uh, that joke sells itself. Yeah, right. In France. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that, that, should, that should be like a big thing. It's, it's, it's disgusting. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. I was concerned that they were exploiting the little girls as well. So Kitty in interviews made it very clear that First of all, every single person involved with this movie knew that they were going to be in a meta documentary. So it wasn't right. like, hey, oh, okay. it wasn't like, hey, you're being cast in a fictional movie. Oh, actually, I'm using the footage of your casting call. Just kidding and switching it into this other movie. So it was, okay, good. she yeah. set the whole concept up. My understanding is, uh, just reading an interview, is that they basically did uh, like a cold call for a John Benet Ramsey, like a documentary film. They did like a, a cold, quote unquote, Inter, or uh, casting with these actors and then about 15 minutes into the interview introduced the entire premise yes. in, in its entirety. Yes. The other thing that, that she was clear about was that she made sure that all of the parents were on set and that all of the parents saw her previous work so they understood who she was. And she actually said in the interview that I watched, you can watch it on YouTube, she mentioned that parents needed to see that she was, quote, a feminist filmmaker. I heard that Todd Solins also did that, that he wanted to make sure that all the child uh, child parent, like child actor uh-huh. parents knew that he was uh, totally not a creep and like a weirdo nerd that lived alone. But that he, um, that he, he was <laughs> definitely making this incredibly creepy movie um, to support children and not make it super fucking weird. That makes sense. Where did you find that out? I'm sorry not to take us off course here, but where did, where did you hear that? Oh, I just made that up. Okay, never mind. <laughs> we'll edit that out. It's the, it's the truth that we choose to believe. Episode 38. <laughs> it, is a, it is a godsend that she did that. I, I, always, I always wonder about parents who allow their children to go into certain circumstances as mm. far as the film industry is concerned, especially mm. with um, the enormous history of sexual abuse that yeah. goes on in the industry. Mm-hmm. And so I always find it curious and troubling the, the parents that are like really, really pushing their children yes. to get into that. I, I mean, I think there was some psychologist that was saying that like children that have to perform, um, suffer with major depression, anorexia, anxiety, a lot of, a lot of nervous disorders later on in life. And I actually, I had a therapist years ago that was like, yeah, the only people that, um, I do not work with are actors Mm. Mm -hmm. because, because the kind of the same, that personality switch Mm -hmm. that happens with some of the actors, like some of the, some of the actors that seemed a little more narcissistic Mm -hmm. that were cast in this film. Yeah. Um, Mm. So yeah, one of, one of the producers uh, said that you don't cast the children, you cast the parents. Oh, interesting. Uh, For this had, film? Yeah, well, he just, just in general, he's had years of experience. In fact, he was the CEO of Focus Features before they went under. But yeah, through his experience, he basically was like, yeah, you you make sure the kid is a good fit for the movie, but actually the scrutiny should be making sure that the parents are in it to win it and they're comfortable. And hmm. Poorly cast kids can ruin a movie. 
Yeah. Like kids, as there's like some old expression about, I don't work with kids or animals. Yeah. You know, because they're, they're so unpredictable. On set. <laughs> That's why they always go for twins, isn't it? If, if, if the child is a twin, isn't that ideal? Because you can, you can flip them out when one gets fussy. Holy shit. That's, I, that's diabolical. That's, I love it. You didn't know that? That's, no. I, I think that's great. No, that, I mean, so like the Olsen twins, for example. Well, the Olsen twins and also, uh, Ghostbusters too. Oscar, he's a twin. Oh, okay. Yeah. He's got a, uh, his brother, he and his brother swapped out. All right. For that role. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm certain that that's, there's countless others, but they, they do normally like to work with twins. I watched this movie the other night where the kid definitely ruined the movie. What, what movie was that? Peppermint. Oh, I wasn't here. I mean, that was kind of a bad movie, but. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't here to confirm. Anyway. So the last uh, rock to overturn for me is the brother Burke. So another child actor situation. The different actors playing Patsy and John were talking about like, hey, there's no way that this this kid could actually kill his sister. And then immediately cut to all these different boy actors mm-hmm. smashing a watermelon with a flashlight right, mm-hmm. in a playful way, right? So it's like they're being cute, but in reality, it's this disturbing connotation of like, could a little boy smash in the head of mm-hmm. his sibling? You follow these different boys and most of them would be the way you would expect, right? So you have like the nerdy kid who's just like, hey, my house has a swimming pool. And like the heavy blinking kid who's just like the nerd math kid. But he then was there, so cute. He was kid, but there was that one motherfucking kid. Yeah, the Robert Blake little piece of shit. Yes, yeah. that, yo, good, good reference. Oh. Where Ryan eyes. Yeah, where Ryan was a fucking creeper, dude. Yeah. That little kid creeped me the fuck out. Same. Out of anybody in this movie, that kid was spooky as fuck. Mm-hmm. Yes, he was. If you know, you know. Yeah. Oh, I totally know. I know exactly what you're talking about. He's I'm got gonna... like those like flat, like evil monkey eyes. <laughs> you know? And I'm, we all I'm, know the one I'm talking about. I'm just gonna say, I'm just gonna say from experience, and Brady, maybe you can maybe you can like yeah. you know, back me up here, but I have two older brothers. Mm-hmm. They're six and ten six and ten years older than I am. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of unfortunate accidents that happened with roughhousing with my brothers. Mm-hmm. Yes. Total accidents. Yes. But Enough to send someone to the hospital. And I have one of those as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and so when I when I've heard the theory about Burke being upset or roughhousing and basically accidentally killing his sister, that's first of all, that's not an uncommon story. Right. It happens all the time. And second, I was like, Yeah, totally. Like I could see I yeah, a hundred percent. I'm still alive by the grace of God. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, So that I only heard that theory a couple years ago, Mm -hmm. and to me, that one rang really true because. So the whole whole thing with Patsy is is she's covering up that Burke killed. Yeah, because then for me it was like, well, why? Okay, so there's a three page ransom note. Ransom notes are usually about fifteen words, fifteen to twenty words long. (laughs) This is a three page note, right? Um. It also uses uh, slang and verbiage that the family is very familiar with using. Mm. Uh, like they say, like, henceforth or something like that. And and it's written in the letter, like, henceforth. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of things pointing to the fact that someone in the family wrote the ransom letter. And the fact that, like, 
there was an 85% match to Patsy Ramsey's handwriting, but and the blanket and the blanket. And, but, for, but it made sense to me. It's like, yeah, like I could see that I could see like play going wrong. I could see the brother being upset. I also thought that Kitty Green did a really good job showing how isolated and, and, pushed out the brother yeah, was because you never see him with anybody else he's you always never, on his own he's always on his own and he mm-hmm. had like f- fucking six minutes total in the film mm-hmm. like the brother is a non-entity and um, he's an outsider completely and so because he can't win beauty pageants <laughs> <laughs> i just laughed but that's actually probably, tell me i'm wrong that's probably true actually but, yeah i mean and and it's you know, they, they, Patsy and John both had children previous in previous marriages, but. Oh, wow. um, I didn't know that. Yeah. But Burke and John Bonet, like one of my older brothers was not stoked when I was born. He was really jealous. Mm-hmm. And so I can imagine her older brother being jealous and frustrated and whatever, mm-hmm. accidentally going too far. Yeah. I still, but the thing that, the thing that hangs me is I don't understand the strangulation. No. Okay. Can I just venture a theory? Yeah. Please. Burke. Bashed her over the head with flashlight. She's bleeding. She's in pain. There was a baseball bat found outside too. Mom just finishes her off. What? Why? If I think that, and again, you have to think of like crazy crisis mode brain. Like you're panicked. You have to make a split decision. You're going to lose one kid or you're going to lose two. And if John Benet is I, like dying mm-hmm. and you just end her. I just yep. this I, is this is just all yeah I'm just I know, throwing it out part of the I'm reason sorry. why this case is so I just yeah. I just don't think a mother could do that I think a mother I think a mother would take um you know what a mentally the garrote is yeah because it's yeah because it's you have, you have to, to make it make a tool that. you yeah. have to fashion it that's, like that is she weird. would use her hands weird. if she was going to do that but yeah. I I can't imagine a mother seeing a child in that state and not doing everything she could to uh, get that child help. Yeah. But also accepting the fact that like, okay, like my child might have like a mental impairment. I'm still here a hundred percent because of the accident that happened. Mm-hmm. I, I could never imagine a parent going like, Oh fuck. Well, I better finish. I better I finish, finish it off. off. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. Yeah. And actually the, the fabrication of a tool that that's not, to me, to me, what yeah. throws what throws everything out the window is the garrot. Yeah, garrot. I don't know. Garrot. <laughs> I think it's garrot. But that's that's my thing. Yeah. Is like garrot. Garrot. <laughs> <laughs> that's my thing. Is garot. like you have to make the tool. Yeah. And they they did say that the two ends of it were fashioned from a broken paintbrush that Patsy Ramsey had in the basement. Yeah. So someone has to make that someone someone in the family the nuclear family has mm-hmm. to make the strangulation device and not just use their hands right which you know what? is more violent than using your hands in my opinion mm-hmm. the whole thing with burke in the way that he's portrayed in the movie is making me think about how perhaps perhaps but probably because she seems to be extremely smart the different members of the family are all being displayed in terms of or at least being edited and shown in terms of like their own emotional reality inside the family. Mm-hmm. Whereas John is usually shown as being kind of reserved. Also maybe like a little bit like asleep. Patsy's being shown as a little more frenetic and a little more edgy. Uh, the, or borderline or bipolar. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. So it, she's 
just as Burke is isolated, she's also kind of like alluding to the emotional state of the different family members by using the actors. I want to say that there was also a thought that Burke was on the spectrum there, I don't know. I, I remember reading that, that one somewhere. kid was on the evil spectrum for sure. The evil spectrum. I want, but I, I had heard somewhere that he was on the spectrum. Not that, not that that makes a difference any way here nor there, but like there was just the theory was, is that he just didn't understand in the moment. It's like a child's anger. Children don't think about the long-term effects of what they're doing and, uh, you know, and had an accident, but also didn't register what it meant. So as in he, like he had a history of that kind of thing or that he, he may have also had like a, maybe a disassociative personality disorder or something like that, uh, where perhaps he, he just didn't understand the brevity of what had happened. I see. But it's, but again, it's just conjecture and it's just a theory. As evidenced by one of the scenes where they use one of the actors in what is a fictional movie. So we haven't brought this up, which is there's about eight to 10 scenes that you could kind of imagine would be part of a feature length fictional movie right yeah where they place these different actors into uh, a movie so you get a glimpse of what a feature length movie would look like with these these actors and one of the scenes is with one of the burke actors where he's drawing his family so there's the psychiatrist that's like hey draw your family and he draws his parents and himself and to, to strengthen what Allison's saying is that like if he is on the spectrum in some way, it's like, oh, well, he's just drawing what is present, right? It's not like he's moving on from grieving his sister. It's just that like I've been asked to draw my family. My family is this right now. Logically, this is what my family right. is right now. And I think yeah. that's I think that's what's important about this case is it's those kind of moments where it's like, is he just a sociopath as evidenced by the fucking actor? Uh, the Robert Burke character <laughs> and and suggested with the watermelon sequence right or exactly where he's the that one that would be that's the fun for anybody right or is he more on the spectrum where it's like hey are you just not clued into what's being asked of you sure mm. or it's it's taken very literally like yes. um you know like my sister's gone so my sister's outside the exactly you know my sister's outside the nuclear family yep. so I'm going to draw her over here instead yep you know where it's it's like there's no no harm no foul it's just like i'm looking at this as very black and white situation mm-hmm. and uh, my sister's not here right now so she's exactly. she's outside the family exactly i have family members on the spectrum mm-hmm. it's not a nefarious issue there's just there's just sometimes a lack of of uh, empathetic connection sure and where it's it's everything is just it, everything is just super logical and black and white mm-hmm. and that, and there's no it's it's there's there's a tough they just have a hard time finding the gray areas mm-hmm. and that's totally fine. It's mm-hmm. just, it's just how they're wired. And I think how Burke is represented and there have been suggestions of this is that there's, he's got one of those black and white personalities where um, perhaps as a child, he didn't understand the brevity. If this was the case right. as an adult, it's maybe perhaps hard for them to identify right. because they were so young when this tragedy happened. And also they've just been like, it's always been about their sister, always been about a hundred percent their sister and never about them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he will, Burke will always, always be Burke second and John Bunny Ramsey's brother first mm-hmm. forever. Yes. So uh, you don't know. No, 100% I know. (laughs) 
And this is what sells the tabloids is people who are like, I know. And you're like, well, do you really know? Right. <laughs> Not so. that I know that he did it, but I just know that that. What purpose. if he invents time travel tomorrow? <laughs> oh, God, we'll be fucked up. Yeah. That will do it for our discussion of casting John Bonet. So let's get into our closing thoughts of the movie. So as I mentioned before, uh, it's just, I actually had to watch about half this movie before I really understood like what it was trying to do. Mm-hmm. But once I got there, it really started to kind of develop and I really started to enjoy and appreciate its strengths. Uh, casting John Bonet's purpose is not to solve the mystery of the murder but to change the focus from the sensationalism of an unsolved crime to address the psychic crater that these crimes leave in communities and the fuzziness of personal perspectives, the cathartic value in a chorus of voices announcing and confronting their individual presumptions of a crime that has overshadowed entire lives outside the Ramses. In a way, Kitty Green's process is like scattering the ashes of a collective guilt, all of our guilt, as a nation culpable in its sensationalism, which is an incredible gift from Green, and Christmas is the time for giving. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's a Christmas movie. It's still a Christmas movie. Whether we want to believe it or not, yes. So for that reason, I'm at an exceptional eight. Oh, nice. All right. All right. Well, I attempted to I attempted to watch this movie a couple of years ago. I made it about 10 or 15 minutes and turned it off because it got to the point where uh, the the women that were casting as um, Patsy Ramsey were doing the 911 call and it was like so cheese balls that I got I got super yes. cringed I got super cringed out and I was like I was like I can't I can't watch like I can't watch these women fake cry like I, mm-hmm. I it's, it's not where I'm at right now um so but I had heard really good reviews about it. I just never had gone back to finish it. And so I'm pleased, Brady, that you had chosen it and I was forced to finish it, go to the finish line. Let me just say that as a whole, the film is exceptional. The um, Probably about, I would say for me, it was like three quarters the way in before I was like, oh, I get it. I see what she's doing. Uh, Katie Green is is putting together kind of this like multiple jigsaw puzzle of storytelling and okay i'm figuring it out and it's it's very powerful it's really moving and and with all of this dramatic storytelling is the beauty of william tidwell who goes on for a while about (laughs) torturing titties I'm really into like nipple torture mm-hmm. and how to like flog a woman's breast properly, which which like blew me away. I was like, what the, what the fuck uh, is happening? Whoa, right here? A, a woman's breast? Anyone's breast? Anyone's breast appropriately? I'm sorry, I didn't good, mean to. Good catch, Josh. I didn't mean to single anybody out. Sorry. Please proceed. But but with that, I realized that I misinterpreted the ending, mm-hmm. uh, where I thought it was multiple moments 
in a 10-minute scenario when you guys brought to light that it's actually the multiple storylines that could have happened in a moment. Mm -hmm. And it's so powerful. Kitty Green doing this dolly shot going from the Ramsey's bedroom to the hallway to the door of... Uh, Jean Benet's bedroom and basically the 10 to 12 maybe 15 different scenarios that could have happened in that evening which because we don't know what the truth is all very much could have been the truth and it's and it's powerful and it's moving and it's a great cap on the film and I have to say in the collection of everything that Katie Green does I want to bring to focus something that Brady said before we started the show that she has this exceptional way of showing what happens to young women and women with sexualization through a a thousand tiny cuts, through things that you don't think are a big deal that accumulate to a catastrophe. And what happened to JonBenet Ramsey is an absolute nightmare and catastrophe for everyone involved, for the poor six-year-old girl who was hypersexualized in this pageant world. And it's, it's devastating. Everything together, it's a great window onto the speculation, the storyline of what happened. And I'd have to give this movie an eight. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. I'm fu- no, I'm fucking <laughs> stoked. Uh, casting John Bonet is deceptive in its brilliance. You need to pay close attention little by little it sheds the obvious tropes of our insatiable appetite for gossiping with one of the most famous crime cases in U.S. history and becomes something much more sophisticated and, frankly, much more interesting. What if your reality, what if your truth about your surroundings was merely a reflection of your external processing of your internal trauma? What if our need to be seen is so magnetic that we are willing to put ourselves in a very public venue but only if we do it under the guise of acting. What if we are all acting all the time anyway? We can't hide from our truths, nor should we. Casting John Bonet works on so many levels. You could find it to be a tragic comedy, an academic exercise in acting, a haunting story of a family that seemed destined for catastrophe, or simply a superficial curiosity. The movie had me hook, line, and sinker. I was hypnotized and engrossed the entire time. I only wish I could stay with the people or even have more time with them. So, with that, an eight. We're all eight. (laughs) My favorite number. It's a good number. Cool. I was very much sincere uh, with the choice. I recognize that it could have been considered kind of snarky. No, not at all. When I think of Christmas, I think of somebody. Yeah, that's... (laughs) I frankly, this is my weird brain is that I was like, oh, Christmas. Oh, yeah. So anyway, so next up, yes. uh, we are going to go a completely different direction. Oh, shit. Surprise, surprise. I'm going to go to Vegas with the uh, and bet on the fact that this is going to be our episode with the most dog shit choice ever. Are you sure? Remember that we did Eve of Destruction. All right. Santa Claus from 1959. A.K.A. Santa Claus versus the Devil. I'm so excited about this. <laughs> Santa Claus versus the Devil, 1959. I am so excited about this. So this is a Mexican movie from 1959. Rene Cardona? Yes. Uh, Calderon? Cal- Cal- I don't know. <gasps> you guys, I'm looking at photos right now. It's so good. The conceit here is Santa and Merlin the Wizard 
are fighting back against Pitch, which is a devil that is uh, brought by Lucifer to teach children to make Santa Claus angry. Mm. Oh, interesting. That okay. Is, that is the... Uh, the stakes of this movie. So compare that to casting John oh. Bonet with the stakes. Of <laughs> Brady, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. This is great. Uh, supernatural thriller. <laughs> yeah, this is great. Santa Claus versus the devil. Outstanding. So there is a original cut that is a little uh, three minutes longer than the American cut that is in Spanish that I will not ask us to watch. So this will be the English dub version that is three minutes shorter. Oh, thank you. If you, if you want to check out the longer version. There is an MST3K episode from 1993 that I, if you want to watch this, you're, no, you're welcome to watch it. But I think that we are more sincere than those fucking assholes. So we're not going to fucking uh, lampoon this movie the way they do. I'm going to watch it though. You can if you want, but you better bring the most sincere version of yourself. You know, as of yesterday, Uh I got, uh, you know, like, Around the wa- you know, around the waterhole at, at the office, <laughs> the fucking whatever. Uh, that Merlin was the result of a oh yeah of an of a succubus and a, and just like a human. So he's like he's part, a, he's part demon. He's a daemon. He's a daemon. Well, you are more jacked into the matrix of this movie than the two of us. So you better bring a lot of insights to this one. I'll try. Okay. All right. Well, uh, just as a reminder, you can leave us a voicemail at solid6.net slash voicemail. You can leave us uh, an email at podcast at solid6.net. Also, leave us a review uh, on Apple Podcasts. We sure do appreciate it. Please do engage with us on the various socials. It's very helpful for us. We appreciate it. Yeah, we love hearing from you. On Letterboxd, we are all doing our thing. Some of us are, some of us are reviewing, and some of us are just. Uh, I'm coasting. Yes. I don't. I don't have. I don't have the poetry that Josh has. Yeah. Josh. Josh has a uh, has a style that I cannot compete with. Poetry yeah. comes and goes. I haven't. I haven't. I've been feeling very poetic recently. I've been coming up with some very direct reviews. Uh, yeah, they're all direct, but they're funny as fuck. Where can our listeners find your poetry? Oh, um, Josh Spaceman. Cool. On Letterbox 16. and Josh Spaceman sixty nine on Twitter and Josh Spaceman on Instagram. And Allison, where can people silently creep on your silent on my movie si- watching diary? Oh yeah, so my silent, my silent, but like you know, noteworthy movie reviews are uh, on Bruha Jones on Letterbox. Uh-huh. I'm at uh, Cat Eight Woman on Instagram. Cool. And uh, I'm not positive what my Twitter is. I think it's Allison. I'm not good with Twitter. I'm not. Yeah, I'm, I'm like. I'm like an 80 year old woman on Twitter, but I. Th- I think it's just Alison DeGrazio. <laughs> <laughs> I can confirm as somebody who follows Alison on Twitter that her Twitter handle is Alison DeGrazio. <laughs> and speaking of a Twitter handles, mine is Brady Kimball, and my uh, social media handles everywhere else, including Letterboxd, is Brady Kimball. We fucking. Did it? You we did guys. it again. Forty episodes. Yeah, yeah. Over the hill, Y'all are taking me to Union Jacks. Thank you. Oh, God, nope. No. Nope. No. Why not? This is the most depressing episode we could think of for our fortieth. Well, it fits the birthday then, right? Because it's all downhill from here. <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah. There she is, Miss Later, Gator. Bye bye. There she is, your ideal 
the dreams of a million girls who are more than pretty may come true in Atlantic City. For they may turn out to be the queen of femininity. There she is, Miss America. There she is, your ideal. With so many beauties, she took town by storm with her all-american face and form and there she is walking on air she is fairest of the fair she is miss america